0: Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories.
1: Hey, cardio nerds. It's Heather here. Thanks for tuning in. I'm very excited for this fourth and final part of our deep dive into hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. If you haven't listened to the first three parts, definitely check them out. They really set the stage for a current episode. In this episode, Amith joins his friend and co-fellow, Dr. Laura Young, to take a pulse check with experts and learn more about the structural management of obstructive hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. They discuss the interventional perspective with interventional cardiologist Dr. Amar Krishnaswamy, and then the surgical perspective from cardiothoracic surgeon Dr. Per Wareup. Listening to the four-part hypertrophic cardiomyopathy series in full really underlines the importance of having a multidisciplinary team to care after patients with this multifaceted disorder. I highly recommend Laura's phenomenal review touching on all aspects of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. It's called Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy, a Complex Disease, and it was featured in the Cleveland Clinic Journal of Medicine in May 2018. We'll add a reference to the Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy page on www.cardionerds.com. And remember, this podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice. The views expressed here do not reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. The goal is simply to enjoy learning more about cardiology, directly from Expert Cardio Nerds.
2: Welcome back, Cardio Nerds. I'm very happy to be here with my friend and co-fellow, Dr. Laura Young.
3: Yeah, I'm super excited.
2: Now, Laura, remind me, you went to medical school at the Royal College of Surgeons in Dublin, Ireland.
3: I did, yes.
2: That's very (laughs) cool. And before that, you grew up in Canada. Yeah, yeah. And, And then you moved to of all places, Cleveland, Ohio, for residency, <laughs> and your talent was so apparent, we were very fortunate to recruit you to stay here for cardiology fellowship. So folks, I just have to say that Laura has been, you know, as a co-fellow, she's been amazing. She's as kind as she is brilliant. She's a woman of the world. And I'm really excited that I will also have her as my senior international cardiology fellow Thanks, Ahmed. So, uh, what are we doing today, Laura? So,
3: we're going to talk to Dr. Krishaswamy about some of the nuances of treatment of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy uh, from an interventionalist standpoint.
2: Oh, that's very cool. And then from there, I guess we're going to go on and talk to Dr. Per Weirup.
3: Yeah. To, to get the
2: contrasting yeah. view from a surgical perspective.
3: Exactly. Get it all done. <laughs>
2: Laura and I are so excited to discuss septal reduction therapy for hypertrophic cardiomyopathy with Dr. Amar Krishnaswamy. Dr. Krishnaswamy, thank you so much for taking the time to teach us
0: today. Absolutely my pleasure. This is uh, hopefully going to be fun and educational. So let's get started.
3: Dr. Krishnaswamy, thank you so much for being here. It's such a pleasure to be here with you. For our listeners, Dr. Krishnaswamy earned his medical degree at Yale University. He then went on to complete his internal medicine training at the Osler program at Johns Hopkins, where he also served as the assistant chief of service for the Barker Medical Service. From there, he moved to the Cleveland Clinic for both general and interventional cardiology fellowship training, where he's remained as faculty. Since then, he's just had, honestly, a meteoric rise. He's the program director for the Interventional Cardiology Training Program and was just recently promoted as the new section head of the Division of Interventional Cardiology here at the Cleveland Clinic. Congratulations.
0: Thank you very (laughs) much. I really appreciate it.
3: I am so excited to join as an Interventional Fellow next year under your leadership, uh, Dr. Krishnaswamy. So thank you so much for fitting us into your busy schedule today.
0: Oh, it's absolutely my pleasure, and um, your words are all uh, too kind. Uh, I have to mention, though, for anyone uh, that's listening that uh, has familiarity with the Ulster program, Laura did mention that I was ACS for the Barker service, but I would be remiss if I did not mention that I did my house staff training on the Longcope service. (laughs) So anyone that was part of Longcope, uh, please, uh, no disrespect. (laughs) Um, But uh, no, very, very kind words, and I can uh, truly only... uh, I've worked hard, but I really have utmost thanks to all the mentorship that I had, both in uh, internal medicine training at Hopkins and then throughout my training and uh, staffhood uh, here at the clinic so.
3: Okay, so now we'll get started. Uh, So Dr. Krishnaswamy, when you refer to a patient for alcohol septal ablation, what really factors into your patient selection?
0: So I think there are a few different factors, some of which are patient-specific and some of which are institution-specific. With regard to the patients themselves, we want, of course, to know what the septal anatomy is uh, of the muscle. So in looking at the echocardiogram, Is it truly just an upper septal hypertrophy uh, near the base or is there a concentric ventricular hypertrophy? The reason that's important is because we're most effective at treating the upper septal knuckle. In rare cases, in patients who are truly debilitated by their hypertrophic cardiomyopathy and obstruction and they're not uh, really candidates for surgical therapy, we do sometimes perform uh, septal reduction therapy with our alcohol septal ablation, even for those patients in the hope that it might help a little bit. That is certainly not a typical or a common uh, scenario and is certainly more off-label, if you will. But really, we're looking for that patient with the upper septal knuckle. A really important part of the evaluative process and one that we've learned uh, a lot about from research by our imaging colleagues and our surgical colleagues here at Cleveland Clinic is the fact that up to a third of patients with HOCM and LVOT obstruction might actually have obstruction as a result of deranged cordal attachment or papillary mm-hmm. muscle arrangement. And so I really make sure that any patient that I see for alcohol septal ablation does have a cardiac MRI to make sure that it's not an issue there of obstruction that I'm not going to address by simply injecting alcohol and performing alcohol right. septal ablation. Beyond that, it's important to look at the coronary angiogram to make sure that there's an appropriate septal perforator branch uh, for us to address. Uh, Most often these come off of the proximal portion of the LAD, but rarely they can come off of a ramus branch or a high diagonal branch or something of that nature. Um, But we look at uh, essentially where we think an appropriate septal branch would be and then at the time of the procedure we actually inject echo contrast into that targeted septal and make sure that what lights up echo at the time is the area that we want to Mm ablate. And then beyond that, moving from the patient-specific factors uh, really to the institutional factors, I think it's important to know what is the expertise. There are some institutions where there isn't as great of a surgical experience and the interventional experience is greater, Uh, and so it's important to understand sort of where the strengths lie for any given program. Uh, I think we have the luxury uh, that both in our department in interventional cardiology, and in the cardiac surgery section, there are operators on both sides of that fence uh, that have a great deal of experience. And so we're able to be, I think, very targeted in what is best for a given patient, taking into consideration comorbid factors, issues that may uh, arise with regard to recovery, and also uh, looking at uh, things like conduction factors. Mm -hmm. So there are times where I might get a patient who's on the relatively younger side, and they have, a baseline right bundle branch pattern. And they're sent to a surgeon because they're a good candidate for surgical myectomy. But when surgeons do a myectomy, they will most often cause a left bundle branch block. When we do septal ablation, we'll most often cause a right bundle branch block. And so, if someone comes with a pre-existing right bundle, they have a really high chance they might have a pacemaker after a surgical myectomy. And so, those patients sometimes will get sent to me by the surgeon to say, hey, this might be a scenario where they have a lesser risk of pacemaker. Uh, And in fact, I just treated a patient like this three weeks ago who was a welder, who, if he had a pacemaker, would have been unable to do his job anymore. (laughs) So, even though he was a young guy, a very active guy, um, he had a baseline right bundle branch. So, uh, the surgeon sent him to me instead. Uh, and he went through an uneventful alcohol septal ablation. He's doing well, no pacemaker, so uh, he's actually back to work now. So uh, again, this is the luxury of, uh, I think, having an institution where you can get the whole sort of breadth of treatment and specify it for a given patient.
2: Yeah, realizing more and more how HCM management, like so many other things in cardiology, is really multidisciplinary and and patient-specific. You touched on this a little bit, but how do you counsel your patients in terms of the known complications of um, septal reduction therapy and septal ablation?
0: So we talked a a little bit, we touched on the pacemaker risk. Mm -hmm. Um, And in truth, uh, septal ablation therapy is, in most scenarios, equally effective to surgical myectomy with regard to uh, LVOT uh, obstruction reduction. There aren't any real randomized head-to-head comparisons, as I'm sure you've already gone through in the data that you've discussed. And so most of these are sort of case series and meta-analyses and so forth, but for the most part, the result is going to be as good. But the complication profiles are different. So pacemaker risk is really, I would say, the most important thing to consider, especially because we're looking at so many patients who are younger and for whom having a pacemaker long-term may have other ramifications down the road. So for the most part, we say that the risk of pacemaker implantation uh, or need due to complete heart block after a septal ablation is on the order of about 15%. Now, those patients who come in with a wide QRS to begin with, those patients who come in with a baseline left bundle, these are patients who are going to have a higher risk than sort of the all comers, if you will. For a point of reference, um, we say that the risk of a pacemaker in a high-volume surgical myectomy center is probably closer to about 5%. So it is a, a real tangible risk difference with regard to pacemaker. From the other standpoints, uh, risk of things like ventricular septal rupture is barely decimal percentage points. Again, assuming that these are this is a procedure done by someone with experience uh, in that area. Risk of things like coronary dissection, risk of things like stroke due to catheter manipulation. These are all I would say typical risks that we discuss with percutaneous intervention. Uh, certainly fall under the less than one percent category. But again, as with all things implies that the operator that you're seeing is experienced in doing these cases.
3: Okay, so I remember when I was a resident and a fellow here in the CICU and we'd get these patients up from your CATH lab and an alcohol acceptable, you're essentially creating an MI in these patients. So going through initial complications that we should be looking out for when these patients come up to us what do we usually see immediately post-procedure? Sure,
0: so when we're in the cath lab and doing the procedure, um, for the most part nowadays, we do these procedures with bilateral radial access, Mm -hmm. uh, as we've really converted to doing most of our coronary-based procedures uh, via radial access. Uh, So in those cases, you're gonna do the usual post-procedure exam checks for the radial arteries. If there's a femoral access for some reason, you wanna be looking for any potential bleeding complications, kind of the routine in that regard. For septal ablation specifically, in the cath lab, we're looking at the echocardiogram and the invasive gradients to know that we've gotten a good result and how much alcohol do we want to give and so forth. But in the period of hours up to about a day or two thereafter, we might actually see an increase in the gradients just because of edema that happens in the septum. And so when you're managing these patients in the intensive care unit or even on the floor in the days thereafter, in case of hypotension, you want to rule out the usual things. Heaven forbid, was there a bleeding complication? Was there some kind of a coronary perforation, tamponade? Those kind of usual things. But you really want to keep an eye out for worsening outflow tract obstruction because how you're going to treat that with regard to presser choice is going to be different. You might use something like a phenylephrine, for example, rather than your usual pressers for hypotension. And and of course, volume in this setting Mm -hmm. is going to be important. The other thing we look out for, again, is the conduction abnormality. Because the conduction abnormality really can occur anywhere up to almost 40 to 72 hours after the ablation, we will usually leave a temporary pacemaking wire from the internal jugular vein uh, that we implant at the time of the procedure. We'll leave it for anywhere between 48 to 72 hours. In someone that starts with a narrow QRS, doesn't drop any beats over the ensuing 24 or 48 hours thereafter, you're probably fine to remove it, and I usually will have them observed in the hospital for another day beyond. Mm-hmm. But if there's any concern for dropping beats or widening QRS or anything of that nature, we'll keep that temporary wire for 72 hours. Obviously, if there's any dependency on that temporary pacemaker, these are patients that end up the a device before they leave right. the hospital.
3: Those are great pearls to look out for. (laughs) Yeah, no,
0: I
2: actually didn't realize that the obstruction and the gradients could get worse immediately post-procedure, so that's really good to know for
0: for our perspective. Yeah,
3: for sure, exactly. Um, And then when we see these patients back in clinic, what are you really looking for when you follow them up?
0: So we're looking really at clinically, how is the patient doing? Hopefully they're feeling better and often they've had a functional decline by the time they get to me. So they're feeling better, but they probably still have a few months more of sort of physical and functional recovery left. Mm -hmm. So making sure that they're engaged in cardiac rehabilitation and that's a very important part of really any kind of cardiac recovery. We also are looking at an echocardiogram to understand what's happening with the gradients. As I said, we do get an acute reduction in gradient uh, at the time of the procedure, and for the most part, we'll see about 75 to 80% of our final result will get acutely, and that's just because that basal septum is no longer contracting, you're not getting the systolic anterior motion that is the bulk of the LVOT uh, obstruction. But over the ensuing two to three months, you might get another 15, 20% uh, reduction in gradient, uh, just because that part of the septum has has died and has kind of sloughed off, if Mm -hmm. you will. Um, We do, of course, want to keep in mind, any of the potential complications when we see patients in follow-up. Heaven forbid, is there some kind of flow in the septum? Are we worried about uh, ventricular septal uh, rupture? Again, extremely, extremely rare and not expected, but we keep it in mind. And then in the rare circumstance that, for whatever reason, they didn't have a good result from the index procedure, they still have symptoms, um, they still have significant degree of obstruction, you know, is this a patient that we need to go back and either target a different septal perforator or go back to that, same? septal perforator and add more alcohol. Again, these are rare. Um, It's probably 5% or less of patients that have an alcohol septal ablation that go for a repeat procedure. Certainly there are, again, rare circumstances. Uh, Patients I've taken care of that had surgical myectomy that I might have brought back years later Mm -hmm. to do an alcohol ablation. Again, these are not typical scenarios, but the things that we always keep in mind.
2: That's incredible. Uh, now, Dr. Swami, you gave a great new conference a couple of weeks ago, and you mentioned that the development of LVOT obstruction in elderly patients with aortic stenosis undergoing TAVR. Uh, what are the situations when you worry about that, and, and how do you deal with that during? the type of procedure.
0: Sure. So that's, I, that's a, an important point. So when our imaging colleagues and our uh, surgical colleagues went back and looked at uh, the data, specifically the MRI data, of patients who were elderly and hypertensive and compared it to those patients who had hokum, they actually looked very, very similar. So a lot of the anatomic uh, morphology there, the hypertrophy with age and hypertension that tended to be a little bit more at the upper septum and have that septal knuckle, the horizontal uh, lean of the aorta and the LV outflow creating uh, that curve going from the ventricular cavity out to the proximal aorta, those things were similar in both of those groups of patients. And the reason that's interesting is because these elderly hypertensives are the ones that we're treating with TAVR for their aortic valve stenosis when it develops. And so If you look at perhaps why LVOT obstruction may also occur after aortic valve replacement in addition to these anatomic factors, it's possible that when we relieve the aortic valve stenosis and we increase flow velocity through the LVOT, that in addition, there's these sort of venturi forces that may draw forth the anterior mitral valve leaflet and then contribute in addition to these anatomic uh, changes that I mentioned with age and hypertension. Now, if you look at the surgical series that describe these, I wouldn't say the data is robust, but there are some that show that up to 10% of patients even who go for a surgical aortic valve replacement may have some kind of concomitant septal reduction therapy. But in about 1% or so of patients, there's actually an unexpected septal reduction therapy, either because of what the surgeon sees on surgical exploration, because the procedure like a cardiogram showed some degree of obstruction that wasn't seen previously, or after replacing the valve, they now see LVT obstruction and go back and do something to the septum. Again, not common, but certainly the more and more we treat these patients percutaneously, it's something that cardiologists and interventional cardiologists should really keep an eye out for. And so the way that we tend to approach these patients, again, it's important to be thorough. We don't just look at an echocardiogram and say, hey, the patient has severe AS, let's do TAVR, but we really want to get an understanding of the LVOT as well. How thick is the upper septum? Is there any evidence of SAM or LVOT obstruction at baseline? If there is, we're always worried this is going to get worse after we replace the valve, and we'll bring them preemptively for a septal ablation, let them recover for a month or two, and then bring them back for TAVR. If the risk factors are there, the upper septum is thick, but there's no real flow aliasing, there's no LVOT obstruction, we'll just bring them for a TAVR, but keep a very close eye on their hemodynamics. So immediately after the TAVR, if there's some sign of obstruction, but they're not hemodynamically embarrassed, we'll just give them some beta blocker, calcium channel blocker fluids, what have you, and follow them. But if, heaven forbid, they start becoming hypotensive, and it's not a procedural issue, but it's really LVOT obstruction, that might be an opportunity for an urgent or an emergent septal ablation. So these are, I think, the important things uh, to keep in mind and how we have to really think about these patients more holistically than just their valve.
2: That's, uh, that's great. And it's an overlap that I didn't know to think about before yeah, that new conference sure. you gave us. Um, but, you know, you, you are one of the busiest, one of the most efficient people I know. You're a skilled interventionalist, a dedicated teacher, and an active researcher. And yet, you are also a husband and a father, and, and you were just on the phone with your daughters walking into this interview. How do you balance life in and out of work?
0: Um, That is uh, probably the most challenging of the questions that you've asked (laughs) so far this morning. um, And I I think it is. uh, there's obviously a lot of facets to that question. The first, obviously, is that it it takes a village. Um, I have a wife who is very uh, dedicated to her uh, career and uh, extremely busy in her own right. But the good news is that she and I both uh, really take family and friends as a priority for ourselves and it's what makes us happy and gives us energy and and for our own uh, children as well to see that as an example i think is important Uh, we both grew up in households where uh, family and friends were uh, were a really important part of our parents lives and so i think that to keep that as a priority uh, through training and into sort of attending hood is important as fellows, your time is often not yours. You're doing cases based on your attending schedule, you're rounding based on your attending schedule, and so forth. But I think to keep the idea in mind that things outside of the hospital uh, should maintain an important part in your lives uh, is an important philosophy. And even as fellows, you can find the ways to make that happen, right? Maybe it's that you sleep a little bit less. That's usually the first <laughs> thing to go. I, uh, that. I you know that. <laughs> Uh, But just to make sure that you're sort of making the right habits for personal care. Uh, It's never too early to start because I think we often will say to ourselves, it'll be better at the next phase. (laughs) And it's never going to be better at the next phase if you don't try to make it better now. (laughs) Um, Having said that, I think it's important to realize that your career choice is not what's going to make you have time at the end of the day. Whether you If you're in cardiology fellowship, I don't think it's really that different whether you choose to do clinical cardiology, interventional cardiology, EP, how much time you're going to have. If you like what you're doing, that's going to allow you to work efficiently, work well, be happy, all of the factors that you need to ultimately make the time for yourself at the end of the day. I think to choose a specific subspecialty based on what is a perceived lifestyle benefit, is not a great choice, because I think it may not work out that way, and then you probably didn't make the right choice anyhow. And so, you know, I think the bottom line is that I'm just fortunate in that, uh, you know, I have a a supportive family, and we figured out how to make it work with the help of multiple nannies to make that happen for us that love our children, (laughs) and, and likewise, our children love them, so... (laughs)
2: That's a very helpful perspective. Thank you for that. Um, You know, This has been incredible. We've learned so much about the interventional management of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, and I just can't wait to learn more from you in the lab. Actually, next week on Friday, (laughs) so I will see you very soon. Thank you again, Dr. Krishnaswamy.
0: Thanks to you both. This was fun.
1: (laughs) Wow, what a great discussion. So many pearls. It's really awesome to hear about the nuance and finesse that goes into interventional cardiology. Next, Amit and Laura discuss the surgical perspective with Dr. Per Werup.
2: Laura and I are very excited to be here with Cleveland Clinic cardiothoracic surgeon, Dr. Per Werup. Dr. Werup, thank you so much for taking the time to teach us about HCM from the surgical perspective.
4: You are so very welcome. I'm really happy to have you here and just come with whatever question you ever have.
3: Thanks, Dr. Weirup. So for our listeners, it is such an honor to be interviewing Dr. Weirup to start with. He received his graduate education and residency training at Lund University in Sweden and completed his advanced cardiac surgery training here at the Cleveland Clinic. He then returned to Europe where he worked hard to become the world-class surgeon that he is today. We were fortunate enough to recruit him back here to Cleveland where he continues to take in critical care of our patients. He's as skilled as he is a gentleman, and I'm always so happy when I call a consult and he answers on the other line. And friends, honestly, if that's not all impressive enough, Dr. Weirup is also a talented pianist, and he also enjoys alpine skiing and show jumping.
2: And Dr. Werb, I have to ask, my very first question for you today is, what is show jumping? I feel like I should know this. <laughs>
0: oh, okay.
4: <laughs> it, it, it's a question, a competition. So, so you're riding your horse and you're jumping a series of, of obstacles, pretty high fences. And, and uh, that is a very nice sport. And oh, that's pretty incredible. And, and, and the horse will, of course, jump, but the whole trick is to have a good pace and position it well to the fence so that it Ah. it makes it easier for them to jump. And that's that's interesting that I like the sport because it's a matter of of eyeballing. You need to control this thousand pound horse that's going with very gentle uh, hands and, and then position the horse correctly to the fence. And that's really, and you have to do it on the stride, of course, in canter. So you have to have a good eye for things to fit in between the fences same as if you want to have stuff to fit when you're doing surgeries and reconstruction of the heart.
2: Oh, that's an interesting parallel. That's beautiful.
3: (laughs) All right. So now to get down to it. Um, So we'll start with kind of a first question that might be a general question for everyone, Dr. Weirup. Which patients are really the ideal candidate for septal myectomy? And when do you know it's the right time to do it?
4: So the, the ideal patient is the patient needs to have an obstruction of, of this left ventricleotra tract, meaning that it's obstruction to prevent the blood from leaving the heart. Mm-hmm. And that obstruction is caused not just by having too much muscle, but it's also uh, interplay with the mitral valve that's being sucked towards the, the, the wall. And so the mitral valve and the thickened muscle of the, the septal wall trying to make the life as miserable as possible for the patient. Mm-hmm. And so every patient that has an obstruction there with a lot of symptoms that hasn't responded to a medical treatment, they can be helped from a surgical treatment.
2: That's incredible. And, and the more I've learned about HCM, and I realize that it's not just a septum, it's a septum, the papillary muscles, the mitral valve, and so I'm glad that you brought that up. But when it comes to the septum, how do you decide how much to shave off in the first place?
4: Yeah. So... so we we do, of course, many different scannings, MRI and ECHO, serial ECHOs, but eventually the, the decision really how much to cut out is really sculpturing of the inside of the heart. That's made in the OR, so when the patient is asleep, we do a new ECHO, a esophageal ECHO, TE, and, and then we spend a lot of time really looking at the different areas because the septum has very different thickness, in, in different areas. So we are slowly creating a mind map that I will mm. use when mm. when I'm when I'm sculpturing the heart.
2: That's very interesting. And and then
4: what what I'm aiming for is uh, not to thin it out as much as possible. I'm mm. aiming to make the septum look like a normal septum. I see. So we still want to have contractility left there, not just a thin sack. Gotcha, very cool.
3: Um so then moving on kind of what when you were talking about the obstruction, we say that it's both the, the muscle and the mitral valve. Um, how often do you end up needing to do a simultaneous mitral valve repair or replacement, and how exactly do you decide that?
4: Yeah, uh, a mitral valve replacement is very rare okay, uh, in, in my hands, or mm-hmm. in the two of us who's really doing this. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, And that means that there is an intrinsically not repairable problem with the mitral valve. And in our hands, that's extremely rare. Mm-hmm having to do a repair uh, where we are taking away the, the mitral portion of the obstruction we do that in about a third of the patients that need it okay and that repair can be uh, typically is the mitral valve is pulled by by the papillary muscle that are controlling the position of the mitral valve in these patients these papillary muscles are placed a little bit incorrectly more closer to the septum than they should be or they are too mobile so they are swaying in the, the bloodstream like sail in the wind. And, mm-hmm. and in that those cases we move them over to more correct anatomic position. We sometimes also see that there are some scar tissue that's been formed on the mitral valve and that scar tissue is is kind of easy to get caught in the bloodstream and, and then we resect scar tissue. And the third is if there are, are intrinsic problems with the mitral. So, so two things. It's not just an obstruction of the outflow tract, but it's a real problem, like a prolapse of the mitral mm. Mm. Can we Then we address that at the same time. That is a real mm. challenge, but very interesting because the tricks that you do to prevent the prolapse is can increase the mm. risk of having an obstruction. So you really nice. have to do a balanced judgment. Yeah. We, putting in a Swedish way, we're pretty good at we don't exaggerate in sweden it
3: sounds like it's interesting to think about that these mitral valve repairs that you are doing are really not because of severe mitral regurgitation it's just the the layout of how the valve interacts with the the obstruction which i didn't really think about so that's good to know you talked a bit about this and you already beat us to the punch but we were wondering as well about the complementary techniques you have for papillary muscle reorientation that's Mm. Something that's pretty unique and pretty novel it sounds like. Um,
4: yeah I, I would it's developed here by Dr. Madeira and the whole concept behind this is to move them to normal position and the reason we're doing it is to avoid excessive cutting of the septum. There are other clinics who, who says we don't need to do the mitral valve we just cut some more muscle and, and uh. so of course if you cut the muscle very thin Hmm. It's going to sure. bulge, and you don't get an obstruction, but you, you increase the risk, the need for pacemaker. You increase the risk of, of ESD. It's a, it's a hole between the left and the right side, and that can be a potential lethal complication. And the third, which both Dr. Madeira and I believe in, we want to shape the septum to look like a normal, so that it's still working, not just a, a thin bulge. And I think if, if we want to preserve the septum and not cutting too much, then you, it, it's a smart way to move the papillary muscles away. Yeah. But the whole oh, key really is to create a nice wide uh, opening of the left ventricular right.
2: And, you know, we actually, we hadn't planned on asking this, but you started talking about the complications of uh, the myectomy and ACM surgery. Are there any other complications we should be thinking about?
4: yeah so if we it it, it it is a major surgery, so potentially everything can yeah. happen. We are as interested as the patient and the patient relative to not have any complications So, yes, for sure and, and so they are in our hands extremely low, as I mentioned you can potentially have so that septum ruptures you get a hole. We don't really miscut so that we're cutting through but but it can if if we make it too thin, it can rupture the risk of that is less than one in thousand. Oh wow and then the other is that they need a pacemaker but again the way we are cutting and working with both the mitral and the, the risk of needing a pacemaker is is about one percent and overall the, the risk of dying is is less than one percent as is the risk of stroke incredible
3: um, and so, then, going into those patients who might need a pacemaker, do you have a different approach if someone already has their baseline, you know, right bundle branch block, and you're going in to do the myectomy? Yeah.
4: So, so we we know very well. So, so, so when we're doing a myectomy, you you will always inevitably have to cut the the left bundle. Right. Mm-hmm. So, so you're cutting on the left side of the, of the of the septum. Of course. But but the patient do perfect. the, the conduction is perfectly fine with just the right bundle. Mm-hmm. So, we're always looking at, at the pre op KG. So, mm-hmm. I can tell the patients we know that if they have a normal conduction or preoperative left bundle branch block, then we know the risk for pacemaker is yeah, less than 1%. Right. That's what I tell them. If I see that they have a complete right bundle branch block, Mm. block. Then, I mean, un- unless there's something really weird of the anatomy, it, it, the risk of pacemaker is about 100%, so I consent them, and then we put in a pacemaker system directly in the OR, oh, so that we pre- are degree. leaving the OR perfectly, uh, in, in the perfect shape, ready to Incredible. get the ground running. Fantastic. So, so So so, that, it, it, it's very... And I, uh, commenting on the right branch block, mm-hmm. uh, you, you know, we, we don't do so many alcohol ablations here. Mm. From my experience... From other countries before, if if the patient goes to alcohol septal ablation first, and then if that doesn't work, they go for surgery. Mm, so some reason they always, more or less always, develop a right bundle branch block. Right, right. 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 It, it's how, how the septal branches comes. So then that means that they not only have very regular septum mm. left, so they have a higher risk of a VSD, mm-hmm. a, a hole between the left and the right side, but they also have a very they inevitably need a pacemaker right. so it's not it's not a smart way to oh let's just do an alcohol ablation yeah. first and then that doesn't work we can do the big surgery you know, well, that's
2: actually really interesting yeah. i never thought about the implications of doing a salvage surgery yeah. after a sepal ablation. yeah, yeah. that's so, a so so it's a really it's, good it's point because pearl.
4: where i come from originally that's more common okay it, yeah. not in the area where i worked but i, I got patients from all over sweden so so and then we got them oh they had an Alcohol mm-hmm. ablation, and then uh, didn't it really works. Work yeah. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I can the do that, of course. course. <laughs> but,
2: but we, we have that. you know, Doctor uh we are so fortunate to have you here. You're incredible at what you do. You've dedicated your entire life to this. What uh, do you enjoy most about your job?
4: No, what I enjoy most is is, is helping patients. See the yeah. the patients really happy and. and, and before surgery, many of them are so sick, yeah. n- maybe not really feeling that is going to work. And then after you see the sparkle in their eyes and they're just, <laughs> oh, that's really good. And when the pain and the relatives uh, almost start crying of happiness afterward, I think that's... Then that's very nice. It must be very
2: gratifying. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
4: And I also like as I, said, I like the 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 sculpturing part, the reconstructive part of, of heart surgery. So, Interesting. so I do this uh, myectomies, and I also do many many valve repairs. And that's also it. both of them are freehand, three dimensional thinking. So you have to do the repair when the heart is stopped, relax, but you have to do it with the heart beating in your mind. So you have to think uh, how if I give it does many millimeters there how it's gonna look when it's working and I enjoy that uh, that that part of the sculpturing
2: you're you're beginning to make me think of you more as a sculptor that's pretty cool
4: yeah it it helps if you have a good three-dimensional sense if you're good at eyeballing as started yes. up with the horses. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It all comes back full circle. To show jumping. Yeah.
3: Well, Dr. Weirup, thank you so much for spending the time with us before yeah. you run to the OR. We have learned so much, and I'm already excited to put this all into practice. Yes. Dr. you.
2: this was amazing. Thank you for all the great teaching, and a special thank you also to my friend and co-fellow Travis Howard, who's holding my pager so I can be here with full <laughs> presence of mind right now. To our listeners, this completes our HCM series. Hope you enjoyed it. I know I did.
1: Well, that brings us to the end of our show. So it's time to make like an S2 and split. You can follow us on Twitter at CardioNerds. Don't forget to check out the amazing illustration that Kareem prepared for y'all at www.cardionerds.com. And please share what made your heart flutter this week. Send us a clip to CardioNerds at gmail.com. If you enjoyed the show, be a nerd and spread the word. And now, a flutter moment.
3: Hey, cardio nerds. My name is Crystal, and I'm a cardiac nurse at the Johns Hopkins Hospital. What made my heart flutter recently was when we had a transplant patient walk back on the floor post transplant just to say hello. Seeing her healthy and well made our jobs feel so much more rewarding. I love this show. <coughs>